This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Jim. Good to have you back. Uh, glad you had a decent holiday, albeit I, I, I think the weather towards the end wasn't great. I've been in America as as well. I've been away. I hope that uh, that has given me some interesting perspectives on things happening over there. Packed agenda for today. Uh, as usual, I'm not sure we'll get through it all. That's become our trademark, I think. But I want to start by asking you, as indeed many of our listeners commented the last time I did a podcast on my own. Let's get Jim's perspective on the UK. There's tons going on in the rest of the world, though. The UK is not the centre of the universe, much as it sometimes thinks that it is. And I do want to spend a good bit of our time, allotted time today, on lots of important things that are going on, certainly in this part of the world, under the radar because of what's going on in, in London. Um, There's tons going on in China, for instance, and I know both of us want to talk about that. It looks like bits of, if not all of, the UK and EU are close to or actually in recession at the moment. So a bit of old-fashioned economics, the the data, and it's important to note that. I would like to draw attention to the stuff that you can get on Twitter and elsewhere that summarises nicely daily, uh, nightly news media from Moscow, what's been going on there, the sort of things that people are saying on there, 
talk shows and other news media outlets. And in particular, I want to talk about a guy, and I know you know of what he's been saying, this guy, Anton Krasovsky. Just a little bit on that. We became known during COVID for, for our COVID corner. And um, I'm not suggesting for a second that I'm going to be doing Ukraine corner every time we do this. But there's a few things going on there that I would like to talk about. HSBC, the big global bank, has put out a piece that says that they think that the low interest rate environment that we now assume, everybody assumes, has gone forever, is actually going to make a comeback. I think that's a very interesting thesis. And if we have time, I'd like to explore that for at least a minute or two. And the last thing on my agenda is that there's an awful lot going on in wholesale energy markets, in particular gas natural gas prices on both sides of the Atlantic are behaving very, very interestingly with knock-on effects for wholesale electricity prices, particularly here in the UK. And I think that is fascinating and has all sorts of, raises all sorts of questions. What on earth does that, does that mean for the energy prices we as consumers are going to pay? But let's start with politics, with what's going on in the UK. We have a new prime minister today, as we speak, I think he is unveiling his cabinet. Um, the great Jacob Rees-Mogg, the Member of Parliament for the 17th century, has resigned his cabinet position today. I'm pleased to be able to report, which suggests that he is retiring to the backbenches. That's not a retirement that's far enough, in my view, but it's, it's a good opening uh, day for the British Prime Minister. So, Jim... What is the overseas, Irish, international perspective on what's going on in the UK? Tell me what you think. Well, I said to you, Chris, several times when Boris was on the way out and that when Liz Truss eventually took over, that Liz Truss would turn out to be significantly worse than Boris Johnson. Um, I think I've been vindicated in that. I mean, she has been an absolutely disastrous prime minister, um, I think her budget proved the old Thatcher maxim that you can't book the markets. Ultimately, the markets won out. And in that regard, I think it'll be interesting later in this conversation to talk about what's happening in Chinese markets. But you asked me a question about the UK. I felt and I hoped that Rishi Shunak would get the job um, ahead of Liz Truss. And he didn't, despite the fact that he came out with a very sensible set of economic policies. He has eventually got the job. Um, he's made a couple of speeches. Um, I think they've been okay. He's not full of charisma. But um, and, and I, I saw people on social media last night criticizing the Tories basically of the lack of charisma. And I point him across to the other, the opposition benches, uh, not exactly overflowing with charisma at the moment. So I think uh, Ricky, Rishi Shunak is a good choice um, in the circumstances. I think he's got an incredibly difficult job ahead of him because he's still leading a totally poisoned party that split down the middle. And um, Boris has not gone away and definitely will continue to, I believe, create serious problems for Sunak as prime minister. But um, in, in overall terms, I think the market reaction um, really says it all. Sterling has appreciated significantly, particularly against the dollar, up over 114 today, having hit an all-time record low just over parity a few weeks back. Um, 
The 10-year bond yield or the gilt yield is down at 3.6%. And that had been at least 1% higher than that in recent weeks. Um, and, and, and generally, the, the markets appear relieved that there is now a semblance of stability, um, a, sem- a semblance of somebody in the job who has a reasonably pragmatic view of the world. Um, and, and you could perhaps suggest a safe pair of hands. The first challenge will come for him with, um, well, it's going on at the minute, the naming of the cabinet. I think he would be absolutely correct to keep Jeremy Hunt as chancellor because Hunt's appointment went down well in markets. So, you know, why rock the boat at this stage? Um, I, I, I wouldn't, from an Irish perspective, you know, the, the one thing I think we would like to see is sterling stabilizing um, because this dramatic volatility we've seen in recent times does not make life easy for Irish businesses trading in both directions um, with Northern Ireland and indeed with Great Britain. Um, I don't believe, you know, there's going to be any significant change to the approach on the Northern Ireland Protocol, because at the end of the day, Rishi Shunak was pro-Brexit. Um, he is not going to change that. Um, so I, I, I think in overall terms, there is a sort of a sense of relief that um, stability has been restored for the moment. Um, but I think very few people would deny that Sunak has incredible challenges ahead in trying to stabilise, as I say, what is and lead what is a poison party. I'm struck always by yourself and by most commentary I hear in this country about the abject hatred of the Tories. Um, You know, I I find it quite extraordinary. And I asked you last night, would you prefer to see Jeremy Corbyn getting the job? I certainly wouldn't, because when I look across at the Labour benches, you know, it doesn't fill me with confidence either. And I've, I've heard a couple of interviews with Kerr Starmer in recent days where he's been asked, would he try and bring the UK back into the European Union? He flatly rejected that notion and said it is not on his agenda and he will not go into the next general election on the basis of trying to get the UK back into the European Union. So I I suppose in overall terms, Chris, um, it does represent hopefully an end to the madness that we've seen over the last 12 months, really, with Johnson and with Liz Truss. So a guarded welcome, but I'd still be very, very concerned about the potential for further serious problems within that party. I would agree 100%. I would actually put it more strongly than that. I think that no matter what you think of Sunak as a man, uh, as a politician, as a political operator, uh, the task he faces is impossible. And it's impossible for a number of reasons. First, he hasn't got much time. He's only got a couple of years to the next election. And the problems facing Britain are now so deep-seated, particularly the economic ones, but not just the economic ones, are so deep-seated. It's going to take a number of years to get them fixed, to be able to say that Britain is in a much better place than it was, such is the mess that we're in. It is economic in part, in big part. We think that the data is now saying the UK economy is in recession. And that's a dreadful backdrop for a chancellor framing a budget uh, in which there's a big fiscal hole. There's a big gap, funding gap, between uh, spending and taxation that needs to be filled. And when you're going into recession, you normally want a cushion so that you can introduce some stimulus or at least 
not be pro-cyclical and add to the recession by raising taxes and or cutting spending. But because of the absolute constraint that is on the British Chancellor, they are going to have to tighten fiscal policy next week. And they are going to have to do that as the economy is entering recession. And they're going to have to do it when monetary policy is being tightened. So policy in the UK is now very, very pro-cyclical. And that's not a position you want to be in as a politician. As an economist, you don't want it either. So I think that is one of his many, many problems. The the other stem essentially from Brexit. And as I have said on this podcast many times, until somebody stands up and says Brexit was an unmitigated disaster from both an economic and a political and a social perspective. The country is utterly divided. The media, as exemplified by the Daily Telegraph and other outlets like that, are saying that the plot to replace Liz Truss was all a Remainer plot. Everything is still seen through a Brexit lens. It's a form of collective psychosis. Until somebody lances that boil, we are going to be in trouble, economically, politically and socially. And Sunak, as a Brexiteer, uh, it doesn't make any sense. If you think that he is economically and financially literate, Uh, then you really have to confront the fact that he thought Brexit economically was a good idea. It demonstrably wasn't. So therefore, he too is subject to the Brexit delusion, which leaves me very worried. You mentioned Keir Starmer. He has said, and probably quite rightly, Jim, to be honest, that he wouldn't take the UK back into the EU. Not least, it's the right thing to do from a domestic point of view. It would lose him a lot of votes because it still divides the country. And somebody has to heal that divide. But don't forget, you guys, the EU, would not let us back in even if we wanted to. Um, I don't think that there would be a welcome at all. Yeah, but but there, there is, I hear people sort of suggesting with Labour, the whole thing could be turned around. Um, and and that, that is certainly not too many people saying that, but that's the sort of a view out there. And I was just making the point that... Um, it is not going to change anything in relation to Brexit. One, one of the things that I have found a little bit extraordinary, again, over the last few days, well, I saw it in the original leadership campaign as well. Uh, Rishi Shunak was being described and criticised as being a son of privilege. And um, his extreme wealth, I think himself and his wife are reputed to be worth around £730 million sterling. He's being criticised on the back of that. But at the end of the day, uh, Rishi's parents were immigrants from of Indian descent, came in from East Africa. His father was a hardworking GP by all accounts. His mother was a hardworking pharmacy owner. So they worked for everything they earned. It just so happened that Rishi married well. Um, in a financial sense, and uh, married into a very wealthy Indian family. Uh, but is that enough reason to criticise Rishi Shunak? No, that, I don't no, believe yeah. it is. But, he, but, but there is that sense out there, and there's a sense out there that he's just going to look after the rich, and anything he does now will be deemed looking after the rich, despite uh, the reality being otherwise. I would agree. I think that's unfair. I mean, here's the man that introduced furlough, that for the first time yeah. in British history the state paid ordinary workers wages, or at least 80% of wages. So I don't think that uh, that is fair. Uh, What is fair is to say that as a child of privilege, because I think going to uh, one of the elite public schools and then Oxford and then Goldman Sachs and then a hedge fund. But his parents worked hard to get him through that. But he is a member of the British elite. And 
whether or not that means he's out. I think the question, the open question is whether or not he is in touch with ordinary British life, because uh, we can all attest, those of us that have made, certainly not a journey like that, I'm not a, a member of the multimillionaire class, but those of us that have moved um, through British society know many people who have lost touch with their roots. His roots might be quite ordinary, but his life isn't. Um, his life is not mainstream. His energy crisis will be the decision whether or not to switch on the heating for many one of his many swimming pools. So that that's the open question. I grant you that he may well still be in touch with his roots, but there's a, a wonderful clip that, that from a documentary made about Sunak a while ago in which as a much younger man, he was talking about his background in which he, he catches himself saying, I know people in the working class. And then he pauses and says, well, actually, I don't. I only really I only really know people like myself. So he's self-aware enough to know these things, Jim. So I, yeah, I, but, but, but Chris, hold on a second. I mean, Thatcher was criticised on the basis that she was detached from the reality of how people had to live their lives. And that, that was amply demonstrated during the minor strikes, for example. I mean, Thatcher came from an incredibly humble background. Her father was a grocer. Um, I, I guarantee you if Starmer became prime minister in the morning, the same accusation would be thrown at him that he's detached from the people he's meant to represent. I mean, what do we want in our politicians? Well, that's a very good question. And I can tell you what I want. I want quiet competence. I want the circus to end. And I would like the drama to end, the melodrama to end. And I would like to see uh, Sunak or Starmer make a speech saying, we're not going back into the EU, but we are going to get closer to Europe. So the biggest disappointment I have for Starmer is he said that he wouldn't entertain anything like the single market or customs union. Uh, so the distance, the hostility towards Europe remaining. Until they sort that out, until they quietly reestablish a much better, stronger relationship with our biggest trading and political partner, then the problems facing the UK, both politically and socially, are not going to go away. These problems are big enough as they are without setting them up for failure, setting up the, the, the probability that there won't be a solution. This is what I think both sides of the political divide are doing. They're setting themselves up for failure. So I think life in the UK is going to remain very grim and it, it's going to be a real struggle. And the Sunak premiership, if I'm right, will be deemed to have been a failure, not because of his background, but because he didn't do anything to solve any of the problems, the big, big problems. It's arguable that nobody could solve these problems right now, certainly not in the time available, because they are now so incredibly deep seated. Jim, let's move on from the UK. And I know that both of us want to talk today about other things that are going under the radar, certainly in the UK media, they're going under the radar. Um, and there is a read across, um, a segue, if you like, from what we've been talking about, particularly Liz Truss. You might remember that this all started in the UK with Liz Truss and her Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng blowing up the financial markets with a very uh, hostile, from a market perspective at least, set of economic policies. And this weekend, we've had the third uh, term ratified for Xi Jinping. And on Monday... We had uh, a market that is already down a lot this year. Hong Kong equities, the Hong Kong stock market crashed about 8%, which is a big move, particularly after the big down moves that we've had. And capital is flooding out of China. Lots of stories doing the rounds on various media this morning that 
rich families are bailing out of China, going to places like Singapore, setting up there. And I wonder, do you think Xi Jinping, with his hostility towards markets in general, which is a reversal of what, 30 years of Chinese policy? They've been doing capitalism in a Chinese way, but they have been embracing markets. What markets are saying is that there is now a big reversal of that embrace of markets, that it's old fashioned communism now, and that therefore capital is flooding out of China. You can see that in Chinese stocks. You can see that in the Chinese exchange rate has fallen a lot against the dollar. And is Xi Jinping doing a Liz Truss with respect to trying to buck the markets? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Uh, yes, I think he is. Um, the markets, as you describe, have absolutely crashed in recent weeks. I mean, if you look at the performance of the official one and the internationally traded one the internationally traded one fell to the lowest level ever um the official one is now back at levels against the dollar not seen since 2007 so a, a remarkable reversal in the value of the currency um equity markets collapsing companies down 14 15% yesterday um the internationalized companies particularly um given what's going on in china at least what we understand um, the uh, appointment of Xi Jinping for another five years last weekend, given the, the the whole growth in the authoritarian nature of the regime, um, the reaction to COVID, particularly over the last of the first nine or ten months of this year, um, all of that stuff suggests that um, China is moving very definitely in a centrally, a more centrally controlled authoritarian direction again. And I think the markets are 100% correct in their actions over the last few days. If they didn't do otherwise, I'd be really worried. My one criticism of the markets would be, why did it take them until now to actually have that sort of reaction? I think anybody with any sense would have taken their capital out of China over the last couple of years, because what happened this weekend was not a bolt out of the blue. Um, it was it was well foretold and well foreseen by people who observe China. And we, we I also noticed read at the weekend, I, I presume it's true that a lot of official statistics series on the Chinese economy have basically been destroyed. So uh, because they don't tell the story that the Chinese want to tell. So it's it's becoming 
from a market investment perspective, a total basket case at this stage. But unfortunately, it is the world's second largest economy. It is the second most populated country in the world at this point. So it's an incredibly important player. And back in 2007, 2008, when All About was crashing, the one thing that kept the world economy above water was the fact that the Chinese economy continued to grow strongly. Now that's been removed from the equation. So it, it poses a huge, huge challenge and risk, I think, to the global economy and to the global financial system. But will this have the same impact on the Chinese political system as the blowout in the UK following Kwasi Kwarteng's budget had? Um, I don't believe that is going to happen because I think um, we have seen authoritarian leaders like um, Kim Jong in North Korea basically destroy his economy and his society all in the name of authoritarianism. Xi Jinping seems destined at this stage to do exactly the same thing. So I would really, really worry about what's happening in China at the moment. And if I was a business investing in China, I wouldn't. If I was an investor investing in China, I wouldn't. Yeah, I think it's a really good question to which I know none of us here in the West and possibly even in China would have the answer is trying to buck the markets led to Liz Truss's immediate downfall. Will something happen to Xi Jinping as a result of the economic consequences of his very political policies? And I think you're right to suggest that it won't be the same, because clearly they, these are very different political systems, one very authoritarian, one still with a semblance of, of democracy about it. There is no mechanism in, the, in China for getting rid of Xi Jinping this side of five years and possibly longer. He is now being described as president for life. But the question is, Will the economic consequences, which are clearly negative at the moment, it means that the Chinese economy, I think, isn't going to grow, um, could even go into recession over the next while. Will that damage his base of political support domestically? I guess we don't have the answer to that, but it isn't good. But what it raises in my mind is another question is, well, what is he up to? Uh, does he think, as Liz trusted, that he can buck the markets and get away with get away with it? Maybe he maybe he does genuinely think that and maybe he's right. But that mustn't be can't be all that he's up to. And that really raises both a question and a fear in my mind that the the thing that he's after more than anything else is glory and that that glory is going to come via an invasion of Taiwan. Now, it's commonplace amongst Western analysts to say that China is really pissed off with Russia at the moment for uniting the West uh, in terms of its response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it strengthened NATO, it's produced, uh, discovered a backbone to, to Western politicians that both Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin didn't realise that they had, and that this will cause Xi Jinping to think twice about invading Taiwan anytime soon. I worry that it could be the reverse, actually, that the, the Xi Jinping will look at the West and see that we're getting exhausted by what's happening in Ukraine, by the economic consequences for all of us of the higher energy prices, higher inflation uh, that are flowing from Ukraine. There was a letter from 30 left-wing so-called progressive Congress people in the United States to Joe Biden only yesterday, urging him to have direct talks with Russia to end the war in Ukraine. 
And that's a sign of the Western alliance starting to crack when you see so-called progressive, so-called lefties in, in the US joining their Republican counterparts who are also from a different perspective saying that once they gain re- control of at least uh, Congress in uh, the House in, next month, that they will rethink American support for Ukraine. So I think that he will observe that the West is getting exhausted by its support and that in a, in a way that there's a limited amount of backbone, there's a limited amount of collective action that we're capable of. And that if he did invade Taiwan, far from seeing the West jump up and down and respond in the same way that we responded to the Ukraine invasion, we would say, at least some of us would say, oh my God, here we go again. We can't go through that again or something similar in terms of the domestic consequences for us. Let them have it. It seems inevitable that China is going to go into Taiwan at some stage. And Biden's, um, the the CHIPS law he introduced um, preventing the export of chips into China and so on, um, you know, th- that could force the Chinese actually into try and take over what is the biggest manufacturer of high level chips in China, which is, or sorry, in the world, which is Taiwan. So in, in a sense, what Biden has done there, which didn't get a lot of attention, um, could certainly push Xi Jinping in the direction of um invading Taiwan. Um, in, in terms of, you know, there there is no doubt about it. I, I think that Putin looked at what was happening in the West. He looked at the division that Trump was causing between the United States and Europe. He looked at what Boris Johnson did in the UK, um, taking him out of Brexit and, and uh, taking him out of the EU and launching this massive anti-EU type rhetoric all, all, all of that stuff, I think, emboldened Putin to do what he did. And China, I, I, I guess I'd agree with you that the same sort of perspective, they look at what's happening in the West at the moment. And, you know, the nonsense we've seen in the UK, the nonsense we've seen in the United States, I think sends a strong message to China about how um, those civilizations are actually disintegrating before our very eyes. And that's certainly would embolden China, in my view. Uh, But I think the relationship between China and the United States is going to be the most important and dangerous geopolitical relationship that will shape the world for decades to come. Um, A Harvard academic some years ago came up with the Tosis Lides trap, which was basically describing how in ancient Greece, when you saw the emergence of one new superpower challenging and taking on a an existing superpower that in it inevitably ended up in war um i get the same sense at the moment between china and the united states and ultimately um i think it could end very very badly one of the big problems is of course in answering any of these questions is um we don't really know what to believe coming out of China at this juncture. Yeah, I think we both have read something written by one of our favourite writers, uh, Noah Smith, um, who some of our readers will know because we've mentioned him before. He's written about this in the last couple of days in a very scary way, which is that he starts from the premise he's no idea whether China will invade Taiwan or not, but then from a game-theoretic point of view, games out what will happen if they decide to to invade Taiwan. And he comes to the conclusion that it will inevitably end up in World War Three. 
which is a very scary conclusion. Hopefully it was a theoretical exercise with no practical import, but I must say it, it certainly uh, worries me in terms of, in terms of what's going to happen next. Um, we've talked about, we danced around rather than talked about what's been happening in Ukraine. And I think that uh, there's a couple of things that I'd like to just briefly mention in the time that we have left available to us. Um, and it's important stuff because we're getting access now to, thanks to social media, uh, the nightly transcripts of Russian official chat shows, uh, their equivalent of prime time, Newsnight, th- these sorts of talking head shows where people give their views on what's happening. And of course, being official censored television, it's all one way, but it is, boy, is it scary, Jim. I know you've been watching some of this stuff. I would direct any interested listeners to the Twitter feed of Julia Davis. It's at Julia Davis News, in which she provides this fantastic service of English transcripts of these nightly shows. And there's been several of these over over weeks, which just would scare you to death if you, you listen to any of them. But the most recent one has been terrifying. Somebody called Anton Krasovsky um, has been uh, giving his view. And he is a senior figure within uh, an outfit called RT, which used to be called Russia Today. That's an outfit that, you know, has been present in both Britain and Ireland, actually. Some very prominent figures that have somewhat stupidly appeared on, on this television channel. Anyway, this guy from RT spoke about the way in which Ukrainian women were spending their money in order to welcome being raped. He talked about burning and really burning Ukrainian children in in the most genocidal uh, way, reminiscent of really Nazi behavior during the Second World War. Quite extraordinary stuff. And even the Russians have felt moved to uh, suspend or perhaps dismiss this chap who has been talking in this way. But I know you saw it, Jim. What do you think? Chris, my, my only response to that is that his behaviour and what he's been saying, and I've been following him for a bit, is absolutely despicable. I don't believe sacking him from RT um, is the only option that should be considered at this stage. You know, the guy should never again um, set foot in civilization as, as far as I'm concerned. It was, a, it was a war crime, if you ask me. Absolutely. Totally agree. But in terms of what's been happening in Ukraine, there's so much going on, not just in Ukraine, but globally as well, and all sorts of very, very interesting and I think quite sinister things that we need to keep um, some form of eye on. You, you will know, of course, that Ukraine is shooting down Russian drones, but quite a few are getting through, damage, causing serious infrastructure damage. And I know that Ukrainians are asking people in the UK today um, for uh, help with getting generators shipped out there. Um, the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense has claimed that more than 70% of Iranian manufactured drones have been shot down by fighter jets, service to air missiles, and ordinary soldiers with rifles and machine guns. And they claim 237 drones have been shot down since these attacks started on the 13th of September. Now, of course, Ukraine's asking countries who are good at manufacturing drone defenses and drones themselves for help. The U.S. has promised something called the Vampire System, which is a truck-mounted counter-drone system, and it will be delivered over the course of the next nine months. It's a very new system, apparently. And Ukraine has again asked Israel, who has fantastic missile defense systems, for access to its sophisticated systems. And Israel has again said no, which is really interesting. 
Because the reason why Israel keeps saying no is because of what's going on in Syria and the Russian presence in Syria. And they don't want to upset the Russians there because there is a tacit, unwritten, non-aggressive, non-aggression pact that uh, they don't want Russian soldiers in Syria getting involved with killing Israelis uh, in uh, their operations in Syria and, and all the rest of stuff like that. So they're having to tread a very delicate path. And whether you agree or disagree that whether they're doing the right thing, that clearly is what they're doing. This all actually started back in 2014 when Ukraine first ordered some Israeli-made drones and Russian pressure then prompted a cancellation of the deal. Russia had, had actually themselves bought some reconnaissance drones from Israel. So it's able to buy these drones, but Ukraine isn't. And ironically, perhaps, the Russians are converting these Israeli-made drones into armed attack drones and deploying them in Ukraine. So the Ukrainians are unable to buy Israeli drones while at the same time having them dropped on them. So that must be somewhat uh, annoying, to say the least. Now, uh, it's all very well saying that Israel is reluctant to upset Russia because of obvious reasons, because of what's happening in Syria, the Russian presence in Syria. But the Russian deployment of Iranian drones has prompted Israelis to, to suggest that greater cooperation with Ukraine makes a lot of self-interested sense. And those Iranian drones that are currently dropping on Kyiv and elsewhere in Ukraine were originally manufactured to be dropped on Tel Aviv. So there's stuff going on there that's, and whispers are beginning to emerge that at the very least there's intelligence sharing going on and maybe a wee bit more. So that I think that's something that really just points to the global nature or global consequences, sometimes unexpected, have been happening, that's been happening in, in, in all of this. We are running out of time now, Jim. The final thing that I wanted to talk, well, two things I wanted to mention today. Firstly, and I'll just mention this and just to lay, down, lay this down as a marker, because I think that it's something that you and I should explore uh, in future podcasts, is that I've noticed that the global investment bank HSBC has issued a report saying that the uh, assumption that we economists and market types are operating with at the moment is that the low interest rate environment has gone, gone forever. And they're saying it's going to come back, which is really interesting. It's something I raise simply because, of course, as you know, I agree with it. I do think that, uh, that all of what we're going through at the moment will prove, to use a word, transitory. But we'll let, let's come back to that. But the final thing that I wanted to mention today, and I'm sorry for taking up too much time, is gas and electricity prices at the wholesale level. We've talked about this before. In August, the, the um, one month ahead, wholesale gas price, the key Dutch benchmark, peaked at 350 euros, um, and it's currently below 100. So that's over a 70% fall. Um, in, in the UK, that has corresponded to, been correlated with, helped to cause a fall in wholesale electricity prices, which are now uh, 85% below their peak reached in August. And it has made subtle difference, of course, to the price that we ordinary punters pay. So it's becoming a bit like petrol prices. We motorists long complain that whenever the crude oil price goes up, four-court petrol prices for a gallon or a litre of petrol go through the roof. But when crude oil prices fall, petrol pump prices fall very, very slowly. There seems to be an asymmetry. And I think that we've got something going on like that here. The two things that I've learned in recent days is that uh, energy markets are a bit like financial markets in that the professionals, the participants in them, can and do run rings around the regulators. And in the UK, 
an oddity of the U the structure of the um, uh, energy market in the UK is that the regulator is quietly trying to rebuild the profits of the energy supply companies. These are not the energy producers, the people who dig the stuff out of the ground. These are the people that supply electricity and gas to people like me. You might remember a whole host of them went bust last winter. They're trying to make sure that that's not going to happen again. So they're giving these uh, utilities some of my money and not allowing prices at the retail level to fall. But um, gap, whole natural gas prices on both sides of the Atlantic have come down a lot lately. In the US, they're back to where they were a year ago. In fact, they're lower than where they were a year ago. Um, obviously, a very different market over there. So it's got a lot to do with the mild weather in Europe. It could all end tomorrow if there's a cold snap or if something dreadful happens. But when Putin was blowing up those Gazprom pipelines, I'll bet that this wasn't the effect that he had in mind. What's happening on the gas, the wholesale gas markets is extraordinary. Um, lots of reasons, as you say, the mild weather, but also the fact that storage capacity is very, very tight at the minute. So a, a lot of gas that would have been put into storage is now being sold on the spot market, forcing the spot price down. Um, but Yes, we're not seeing that being reflected for the consumer. So, um, and I would I would agree with the analogy you drew that when oil prices go up, we see it reflected immediately at the petrol pumps. But yet, when oil prices come down, it tends to happen much more slowly. Um, and on the one side, they would argue that you know they buy oil and gas forwards, and hence they are tied into longer term contracts. Well, if, if if that's the case, you know, they can't have it both ways, to be honest. So it's um, it's something I'd like to explore an awful lot more, as you say. Um, in terms of what you're talking about on the interest rate front, um, it's I was I've been asked the question several times in presentations in recent months about how high are European rates going to go. And my stock answer is that the European Central Bank is likely to increase the base rate from one and a quarter at the moment to at least two and a half percent, that anything above two and a half percent to me would represent overkill and that the higher they go, the faster they will come crashing back down again on the back of um, serious economic damage. And the purchasing managers indices out of the euro area yesterday all suggest significant weakening of manufacturing and service sector activities. So the eurozone economy is in serious trouble. So an aggressive ECB interest rate response against that sort of backdrop is going to prove problematical. And indeed, Martin Sanbu in the Financial Times yesterday wrote a piece about um, the political backlash to what central bankers are doing at the moment. We saw out at Jackson Hole, Wyoming, at the end of August, central bankers coming out saying that they would do whatever it takes to bring inflation back under control. And if that meant driving economies into recession, forcing unemployment higher, that is a price that is worth paying for getting inflation back under control. But the political ramifications of that I think will prove increasingly difficult for central bankers to stand over. So I think there's going to be a serious, serious pressure growing between various political systems and various monetary policy or central bank systems around the world. So it's one to watch. But I, I, I don't believe, actually, I agree with you that the era of low interest rates is gone forever. I don't believe it is. I'd like to think that the Finnish prime minister... Um, yes, has been listening to our podcast. We've been banging on about this, and it was her that prompted 
the Sandboo article. That's correct, yeah, Marina, yeah. She said that uh, it's a very strange world when we're jumping up and down, applauding central banks, driving our deliberately driving our economies into recession. And that raises questions of democratic accountability, democratic legitimacy. And these are questions to which, as we both say, we will return. So thanks, Jim. Thanks, Chris. Central bankers do make mistakes. Talk to you. Bye, Jim. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.